Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. I like to say that hair is a woman's best accessory. And thanks to my friends at Way, they make it possible to have good hair days every day. Let me tell you, Way's hair oil has become a game changer in my hair care routine. So if you're ready to have good hair days every single day, you got to check out Way. Head over to the Way, T H E O U A I dot com to check out their products. And here's a little treat for you guys use the promo code Heal Squad for 15% off your purchase. Yep, the Way, T H E O U A I dot com, promo code Heal Squad for 15% off. Hey everyone, it's Kelsey and Jeff, and we are here to tell you a bit about our partner Anchor. We know that you're a fan of this podcast and maybe you thought, hey, I want to make a podcast too. Well, we have great news for you guys. We want to tell you all about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast for a few reasons, but to start out, it's free. Plus, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Plus, you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Do it, you guys, and enjoy the show. I'm on a journey to get better, and I want to do it with you. And I'm not just focusing on physical health. I'm focusing on everything, emotional wellness, spirituality, finances, relationships, and so much more. Every week, it will be my personal goal to bring us, the world's leading healers, experts, and game changers, to share groundbreaking secrets and tips to getting better in all areas of life. Getting better isn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier when we can do it together. Welcome to Better Together with me, Maria Manu. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Better Together. It is Thursday, June 11th, 2020. Um, Hope you guys are doing well wherever you are in this world. Our quote of the day, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. And that is Tony Morrison. We have a really great show for you guys today. Very excited to have on um, two people. One is one of our very own AfterBuzz host, writer, social activist, James Maple, is going to be co-hosting with me today. So welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. And also our guest today, we're featuring social scientist and two-time author Candace Watts-Smith. 
and she is going to help us understand the language and the goals of the Black Lives Movement, um, Black Lives Matter movement, um, and we're going to kind of ask her uh, to help us understand a lot of things, the defunding of police, all of the things that you may have been hearing about and forming opinions on without even knowing what it means. Um, I've had to stop people in their tracks along the way because the first instinct is fear, right? And then you realize, well, if a lot of people are saying we should do this, maybe there's something there we're not understanding. And so today we're going to better understand it because I don't think you can have an opinion until you know what it is and what everyone's asking for. Um, and so we are going to have those conversations here today so that we can have a better understanding. And, um, and then you can make your decisions from there because this is what um, our country is founded on. It's like freedom of, you know, your voice, your choice, whatever. You can make your own decisions from there. But I don't believe it's fair for any of us to make decisions or have opinions until we actually understand what people are asking for. Um, and so, James, we will start with you. Before we get into all the good stuff that we really want to hear about, you've been on the ground, you've been writing, you've been so brave um, in sharing your stories, and I want to get to all of them. But guys, we have lived in crisis in 2020, okay? And there's a new one upon us. So let me share the gloom. <laughs> <laughs> no. Guys, there is a mosquito-borne disease, okay? 38 confirmed cases, 15 deaths. Northeast Massachusetts saw 12 cases, okay? Um, global warming is apparently the primary cause, and it is a deadly mosquito disease that is on the rise. I saw that on Twitter yesterday. Um, I'm really trying to take down my Twitter time because I realized my phone, I went up like three hours a day in consumption on my phone in the last few weeks. And I just, I need to go back to where I was. I was much more Zen then. Um, and, uh, and so anyhow, I saw that and I was like, oh man, I mean, come on. 2020. I I, to I told you, Marie, in the interest of honesty, that's what we do on this show. My knee-jerk reaction was to laugh when I saw this. I know. It's I'm... just like, of course the deadly mosquito disease in the Northeast is skyrocketing. Wait, like... can we show James the shark seagull, please? Yes, give me one more. Oh, gosh. Okay, so James, a friend of mine texted me this. This was like a few weeks ago, and he was like, I mean, did you hear about the new shark seagulls? Like, they're taking over. And so, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's real. It's They're real. Evolving? Um, it's it's the next killer. I mean, we had. Wow. The... Can you see it? <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it looks it looks like what nightmares are made of. Oh yes, <laughs> it just looks so good. It's so creepy, but yeah. Um, so just for a little levity, uh, I thought I would share with you guys that, you know, shit's just getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> and then I was walking by and the news was on yesterday and I heard coronavirus cases on the rise in California. And we're like, oh, for the love of God. I know. And it's also the fear of that this might distract from the important messaging that's happening on the ground right now, too. It's like, 
it's like 2020 needs to figure out what its goals are. <laughs> it's like there's so much. What was 2020's word when it did that exercise? Is it bold? Maybe. Oh, I don't know. That was my word for the year. But I think, uh, I mean, I feel like we are living in a time where we're realizing a lot of systems haven't been really working and we need to just, and it's like an overhaul. Like in, yesterday with James, we were talking about like, you know, when you're cleaning and organizing your house, like take it small step by step so that it's not overwhelming. I think we are in that moment where it's like, no, we got to redo everything all mm-hmm. at once. Like there's so much, but James, I have to say you started a series called I love you, James. And I want to know why you started it. And is it all primarily on your Instagram? Yes. So um, it's all on my Instagram, like you just noted. Um, The series itself kind of started out of a place of therapy for me. Um, I've been protesting in Los Angeles for the past, uh, for eight days straight. And I mean that literally. I would go home, wake up in the morning, find a protest and attend for eight days in a row. And it got to a point where I was... I became so emotionally drained. There's, you know, I think the third day into it, I tweeted and said, you know, I've cried more in the last three days than I have in the last three decades. And I meant that, you know, it it was, it took such an emotional toll on me. And, you know, hosting has always been a a therapeutic thing for me. So I was like, let me, let me try to, to um, find another outlet to really talk to people and really tell them how I'm feeling and really share a part of myself. And that's where that series came from. Um, the initial thought process behind it was, I think it was the day of the Blackout Tuesday, I believe it was, mm-hmm. where we took the following that Tuesday to, to black out our Instagram and really show solid. When you're on the go 24-7 like me, guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me. From working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials, it's been my go-to for so many years and having everything in one place is such a time saver for me with being a first time mom for a while now as you know I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me so I know we're all focusing on our families our health hopefully our jobs and everything in between but It's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're going to love it. Dairy. And I wanted people to take that day to show solidarity, but also think about their actions. Mm -hmm. Think about the things that they have done and how they can use the power that they have for good. So I wrote that and I ended my little blurb with, I love you, James. So I thought that was such a good, positive message. And I thought, and I got so much great feedback from my, my followers and my fans. I thought to myself, let's keep this going. Let's, let's every day when I go out, let me let you into my life. Let me let you into the nuances of racism that I experienced, the nuances of the of, of protests that you may not see on the news, the love, the, the camaraderie, mm-hmm. the, 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 the just passion in people that you don't see very often. So it was my point. It was my drive. And it, it was it's strange because it was innate. I didn't have to think twice about it. It just felt like the right thing to do. And as tired as I was and as, ex- as exhausted as I was, I looked forward to that night after the protest where I would sit down for an hour and a half and think to myself, what was the lesson I learned today? Because I knew that the lesson I learned being on the field 
could be bestowed to other people as well who couldn't, you know, protest in the way that I chose to protest myself. Yeah, I I saw your uh, prom experience. Yes. Your prom, how old are you now? I'm 33. You're 33. So your prom was what year? Uh, see, I graduated high school 2005. So I want to say this was my junior prom. So 2004? 2004, three-ish, somewhere okay. in there, I'd say. So, and where did you grow up? In D.C. Okay. The fact that in 2004 and if if you if you can do you have a minute to read this like do you have it in front of you yeah i, I would I'd love for you to love read to. this out loud for people because what i think is so important fuck i'm going to cry i think it's so important for these stories to come forward because we don't know right and i would never think that in 2004 someone would actually say this out loud to someone on their prom day. Like, like it wasn't even something that was said two weeks ago, which is not excusable. I'm just saying like, now you're in the moment and right. someone just crushes you in that moment. Um, it doesn't make it any better or any worse if it happened two weeks ago. I'm not saying that. I just... They waited till then. And so I want you to read it so that everyone can hear what a young man's experience was in the 2000s. Right. So uh, before I read this, I do want to let you all know, I'm going to say a word that I don't use often myself, but I think in this instance, it is important to, to say these words to confront our discomfort. So I'm going to say the N word and I'm going to say exactly what was said to me because as I grapple with this every single day, I'm reminded of that word. It's not censored in my head. It said it's it's direct to me. So I can only honor that story and honor myself by saying directly to you. So prepare yourself. I will be saying the N word in this. So, quote, when I was 16 years old, I asked Jen W to the prom. She is white. Like any teenage boy, I was nervous and scared of what she might say. Luckily, she said yes. I, of course, was over the moon. I really felt like a man that I have I did a grown up thing. We made sure to coordinate our colors. We made a playlist for the night. Everything was seemingly great. The night of prom, I borrowed my mom's car and headed over to Jen's parents' house to pick her up and take pictures, and that's where things changed. I was told by her family that they were going to need to reconsider. In the words of her grandmother, quote, I refuse to see my granddaughter go to the prom with a nigger. She told me that to my face in front of Jen's entire family. They all did nothing. Presumably because they agreed with her. I felt humiliated. I felt worthless. I was dehumanized. My amazing mother did her best to protect me from, from racism. But in this instance, there was nothing my mother could do. This was out of her control. I've carried the words of Jen's grandmother with me to this very day, and I have cried many times because of them. Now, I share this story this personal story, because I want you all to understand that behind our smiles, there is often pain. There is humiliation. There is dehumanization. The black experience in this country is like no other. We are not okay. I am not okay. Being black, while beautiful, is incredibly painful. Check in with your black friends, because I guarantee they're holding back hurt and humiliation because they have to. 
Lastly, do not check in with me now. It will feel contrived and rooted in guilt. Just please, for the sake of our next generation, do better. Be better. I thought that was so beautiful that you shared that. Um, I am watching Jeff hysterically losing it. I don't know if you can see him, but he's um, clearly moved. So Jeff, tell me what you think when you hear that. And I know you've read it before. Yeah, I I mean, obviously all of us are emotionally exhausted right now, but I, I think what's so important about what you're doing, James, is it's creating a level of personhood to racism. Um, I think I feel very convicted because I feel like as someone who grew up in a primarily white community, and I'd like to think of myself as someone who's pretty socially conscious and hopefully progressive, but at the same time, when you're taught about racism, it's not the same as knowing someone who's been like very deeply impacted by it. And even my close friends of color, I, I wish I would have engaged them more on hearing the personal stories of racism that they face, because at least for me, I feel like that's been a hugely important part of my growth and recognition of how toxic of a problem this is in our country. And, you know, Jeff, I, I, I found that to be the most, to, to be the most effective method to combat this. Um, really making, making people understand, because, you know, I know we all grew up in, in our own households and our in seemingly our own world. But when you can relate your experience to someone and you can you can you can tailor the lines to be to be within their within their 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 line of sight, it it really does hit people differently. And like I said in the post, it's 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 not easy. And I feel like oftentimes, you know, behind this TV host smile, there is pain, there is hurt. So, you know, just because we have this front and because we walk around so proudly, we have to we I, I don't have a choice but to. So I can I can only you know, share my story. And again, to, to go to circle back to your original question, Maria, that was, this is the kind of the purpose of my series. I love you, James. This is a perfect example of it because had I not told that story, I don't think people would understand the impact of racism and how it affects me. You know, we, we, we're all online all the time and we always show the best of ourselves and, and we hide the worst. Sometimes showing the worst of yourself can bring out the best in others. And I think that me sh- sharing my story, sharing my struggle, um, really highlighting aspects of my own life that have changed me to make me the man that I am today and really fuel the fire and the passion that I have to fight for others. It, it needs to be highlighted. And like, I, as I preface my, my, my little uh, blurb there, I, I know that in moments of discomfort, it can make you feel icky. But if, if we have to have a 45 minute conversation for, for and littered with uncomfortability, then so be it because that conversation can lead to saved lives. That conversation can lead to further conversation. Mm-hmm. That conversation can lead to to revolution and genuine change in this country. So it's, it's it's incumbent upon us as a people, as black people, as white people, as all people, to be uncomfortable. It's okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. If you weren't upset, if you weren't crying, I would be more concerned because to me, you, you're lacking empathy. Yeah. So let's be uncomfortable. Let's step outside of ourselves. Say I'm not advocating this, but if you have to say the N-word in an example, then say it. Say it to prove your point. Make people feel uncomfortable because if we don't, we we will continue to ride the same disgusting path we're on. It's our silence that have put us in the place that we on that we're on in the place that we are. Speaking up is the only way to change that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think um I think that uh it's it's so important 
for everybody to speak up, but I think across across kind of issues, you know, like you saw the Me Too movement, you know, women were silent because they felt like they had to because you would, you know, be, you know, ruined in this business. And so I think silence is is, is difficult, right? It can like, it can get you through for a little bit, but it really, it just makes it worse later. So, um, anyhow, I, I have to say, um, I didn't know the story you told me earlier, um, about, uh, about Hollywood Papa. I didn't realize that your parents didn't want you out there protesting. So please tell us the story because I want to understand why your parents didn't want you to protest and why they felt better knowing Kevin was going to be there. (laughs) I thought that was cute. So as I noted, I did protest eight days in a row, um, and these protests, be them uh, range in size from the latest being 50,000 to as small as 50 people, literally. But I made a point to get out there every single day. And the sensationalization of the protests in the media really, you know, as, as any parent would, my parents became incredibly concerned. I got text messages and phone calls um, from, my, from my mom, from my dad. You know, I, again, I'm 33 years old. I'm a, I'm a grown man. But, you know, mom calls and, and you answer. So And you're still um, that kid when mom yeah, comes. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> Hi, mom. I know you're out there watching. I love you. Um, so, so my mom uh, texted me one day and said to me, where are you? I think I just saw you on CNN. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm certainly not protesting. Wait, I'm on TV. And she's like, get your behind in the house right now. So the following day, so so I want to uh, just let everyone know, CNN snitched to be out to my mom. I just want to put that out there as well. <laughs> <laughs> so the following day, my of course, you know, my mom became very concerned. So I made a point. Um, actually, a, a fellow uh, activist TV host and one of your fellow co-hosts from this week, Sanaa Moore. Hey, Sanaa out there as well. Uh, we protested the following day, and we made a point to create a thread between myself, a text thread between myself, Sanaa, Sanaa's mom, my mom, and Kevin. And Kevin's first response to our parents was, you know, I want you all to know that, you know, my parents are in D.C., Sanaa's parents are in Chicago. Kevin let them know firsthand, you know, if anything happens to the kids, I am but a car ride away. They will be okay. So Hollywood Papa had our back for sure. So I was, <laughs> my parents were uh, rest assured and Sanaa's parents were rest assured that we had another set of eyes, parental eyes looking, looking on us as we protest in these streets. I love it. I didn't realize the thread was there. I just knew that he had told all of you guys, listen, if you need help, let me know. And I do know that he had a very long conversation with Sanaa's mom one night when she was worried. And, uh, and he was like, she was, all right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me. I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them.
so great. And I was so worried, but she was so great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, um, I think I, I wonder the pro like, I didn't expect that your parents wouldn't want you out there, but at the same time, again, you're right. They're parents and they're nervous and they're scared. But where right. are you we know, at with know, the protests other... now? Are there protests still happening in the L.A.? Because I've been wondering. Oh, absolutely. Um, to be very honest with you, I'm missing one that's happening right now to do this show. Oh. I, I, I go to protests every single day. There are protests every single day. And I, I also want to hit home the, the, the notion that the, the way that I fight this movement is just the way that I fight this movement. Mm-hmm. Please, please, everyone know that you don't have to stand beside me to stand with me. You know, there are people even at this protest who don't, you know, before I go even further, we have to keep in mind, too, there's a global pandemic happening right now. I understand people's fear uh, for their own personal safety. Mm-hmm. And so it's a risk that I, I am willing to take for my cause and for, for my people in this movement. But there are ways you can protest and, and, and help our movement uh, in so many ways that you don't have to put your life at risk. If you feel the need to come out, I can't tell you how how much of a blessing it was to have people in their cars, on the sidelines, passing out hand sanitizer. Why don't you have a mask on? Here's an extra mask. Uh, passing out snacks and Gatorade. Mm. And, and, and you can make donations from the comfort of your own home. There's so many ways for you to help out. Our friends who are artists who've made paintings and drawings and sang songs and wrote, written poems. So yeah. just keep in mind there are so many outlets for you to, to have your voice heard where it, it won't require your legs. I love that. I love that. Well, James, I think we should get to our guest. I'm very excited um, to chat with Candace Watt-Smith. She is a celebrated social scientist and author whose work focuses on systemic racial injustice in our country. She's the author of two frequently taught books on the subject of race. Uh, her TED Talk on racism has been cited uh, by a number one, a number of online publications. She joins us today to help us unpack this historical moment in our country and to help us on our journey to becoming better allies. Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. And and meet my my friend James here, who is uh, co-hosting with me today. Hi, James. Hi, Dr. Smith. It is wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much. I've been reading up on you the past couple of days, and I've been so inspired. So thank you for joining us for this oh, discussion. Oh, thank you for saying that. And thanks for having me, Maria. I appreciate it. Of course. I, I had told Jeff, our... Um, our producer, I said, Jeff, I need you to find me someone that can help this show be a place where people can go and get the answers to things that they aren't even maybe seeking um, or the things that they do need to know more of. Like, for example, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and people still don't know how to refer to black people. And so there are people, I think it was like Twitch who said people of color. And then I heard that that was um, then denounced, I uh, then, you know, African-American and black. And, you know, the hard thing is, is everyone's scared to have these conversations. And so maybe we start there <laughs> because I feel like um, that's something that I, a lot of people need help with. So. So I think it's so first of all, I think it's funny how you describe your show. It kind of reminds me of Instagram and you're like scrolling through and you're like, I didn't even know I needed that. And then what you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, to answer your question, I think, and maybe James has something to say about it too, is um, I, I, I think part of the anxiety comes from this idea that a lot of us grew up thinking that 
talking about race makes you a racist. And so then when you want to talk about race, you don't know what the right words are and it's awkward. But um, to the question, uh, Black, African-American, I think these, these, these labels have changed over time and they're going to change again. So African-American uh, was kind of a term that came out of um, Jesse Jackson actually was a proponent of calling Black people African-American to give them a sense of rootedness. So mm-hmm. Italian-Americans and German-Americans and everyone else had a place except Black folks. And so he thought that maybe African-American would be a good word. I think now more people are just saying Black because there are African immigrants. There are Caribbean immigrants. There are um, Afro-Latinos who are coming to the U.S. And African-American is probably not the best descriptor of all of those kinds of people. I think people are kind of settling on Black. I don't know. Okay. Is people of color or person of color negative? No. So the thing about, I think what people are getting antsy about is that sometimes you say, well, people of color are treated poorly, but do you mean black people? Because if you mean black people, then just say black people. The people of color thing is a way that it's, it's the same kind of rhetorical device when we say ethnicity instead of race. Mm. So if you just want to say black people, just say black people. If you're talking about Latinos or Latinx communities, say that. If you're talking about Asian Americans, say that. And then sometimes you mean all of those groups, right? All of the groups that are not considered white people of color. There we go. And now you know. And when you know better, you you get better. (laughs) And that's what we do here. Um, I want to talk about... um, Black Lives Matter. So I remember when I posted Black Lives Matter, and this was pretty early on, and, uh, you know, I lost followers and got a lot of heat from people, and I was like, whatever. Um, and I, I I, usually don't respond to trolls because I, I just feel like, why would I even engage in them? But with this, I just, I really felt compelled to, like, get them to see another side. I'm like, do you understand what it's like to get in a car and to have to worry every day of what could happen to you? Like, think about this. And so having having Black friends and knowing that that's a real thing, I, I get it. And so some of the followers that were coming at me, and they're like, well, all lives matter. And I, it was it was kind of insane to me because I'm like, wait, guys, um, I, uh, yes, of course, like all lives matter. We understand that. But like you see something major is happening here. Someone was murdered. And so that's why we're saying black lives matter, because it doesn't appear to have really mattered when it keeps happening. Right. So so then I saw really beautiful posts where people are like, well, of course, all lives matter. And like they had the whole explanation because people have to spell it out, unfortunately. So for people who still don't understand Please explain Black Lives Matter. (laughs) 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 So one, I think it's important just to say it's a statement of fact, right? Black Black Lives Matter. Um, So a student of mine gave me this analogy, which I think is a good one. So imagine that you're um, walking down the street 
and there's a building on fire, all the buildings matter. But the one that's burning is the one that you might should think about dealing with right then and there. And it and and if you don't deal with the fire in that building, it's going to spread to all the other buildings. And so Black Lives Matter is a way to say um, Black Lives must matter in order for us to say and mean it that all lives matter. Right. So I think that this. Ooh, this good way to say it. Is, yep. What's that? I love that. I love that. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. How can you say all My lives matter so if they adorable. don't? Yeah, right. And so I think, you know, there's this idea that all lives matter is like, it's universal. And so we should all be included. But we have little evidence that Black lives matter. So that we have little evidence that that claim is real. And so you just kind of have to assert it. Black lives matter in order for all lives to matter. So it's it's actually an effort to be universal, right? In order for us to say that all lives matter, we have to we have to ensure that Black Lives Matter. In order for all the buildings to matter, we have to ensure that we're taking care of this burning one. James, do you have anything to add to that? You know, actually, I have a question for you, Dr. Smith. I I, I was been reading up quite a bit on you, and um, one thing that came that stood out to me was your TED talk, and it it, it was interesting because. What you said stood out to me, and as I scrolled down to the comments, the first comment I said was what I was thinking, and it's this. You say, the first thing we need to do is come to a shared understanding of what racism is. Now, I thought that was such a profound statement because there's a, there's such a level of ambiguity when it, when it comes to solving this problem. And I think that the underlying issue is first identifying the problem. So I was hoping you could elaborate a bit more on that statement about how... Um, With summer upon us, friends, hair is going to be even more important. Yes, we've got humidity, we've got sun, we've got all kinds of things. And sometimes it's hard to find the right shampoo for your hair. Everyone's hair is so different, and there's no one-size-fits-all solution. That's why I love Whey. They have different shampoos depending on your hair type. Want volume? Fine hair and conditioner will give you that extra oomph you need. If you need some moisture and a little extra bounce, find your happy medium with medium shampoo and conditioner. And for my peeps with thick hair like me, give your hair the hydration it deserves with thick hair shampoo and conditioner. Plus, you guys already know Way carries some of my favorite hair care products I use all the time, whether it's the leave-in conditioner, which is my go-to, or the hair oil. They give my hair this hydrating refresh all summer long. Wash your way to healthier hair. <laughs> See what I did there? With shampoos and conditioners made just for you. Go to the way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com. Use the code Squad for 15% off your entire purchase. That's the way.com, T H E O U A I.com. Use the code Hill Squad. Your hair deserves it. We need to come to a shared understanding of the definition of racism. Yeah, sure. So, first, call me Candace. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I think that sometimes we just talk, uh, we're t- talking over each other. We're not, we're using the same words to mean different things. And we can't really think about any other situation. Or if you're talking about apples and I'm talking about bananas, but we're both calling it oranges, it's just going to, it's going to get all jacked up. Right. And so I think that one of the things that we see a lot of is um, people are using this word to mean totally different things. Some people are using this word in a very narrow way to say, oh, it's kind of like what my grandma says when she you know, doesn't like that her granddaughter is dating a black kid or something like that. That 
it's very overt, it's quite clear. You don't like someone because of the color of their skin or their racial group. But if we think about it, then there's some other people who are talking about systemic racism. And they're talking about policies, laws, patterns, um, biases. Well, if you're just trying to get rid of all the grandmas in Mississippi, and you think that racism is gonna go away, then we're gonna have a different conversation. And you're also gonna have a different set of policy. You know, you're gonna have a different set of solutions. So some people are gonna say, oh, well, let's work on hearts and minds. And some people are gonna say, let's work on policies and laws, right? And so I think that both of these ways of thinking about racism is right, but sometimes we mostly just see the hearts and minds one and not also the systems, laws, institutions, rules, norms, um, even just kind of the way we live our everyday lives, right? That we live our lives in very segregated ways. Um, so we have to kind of come together to realize that it's both of these sets of things that we need to figure out how to deal with. Can you define racism? Sure. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say, I like. I think it's important to think about structural racism. And, and I would say racism, let's say this, racism is, I think, rooted in prejudice, right? We know, we can think of someone in our family who just doesn't like people because of the color of their skin. We would count that as racist. Then we could also think about racism in terms of um, maybe providing uh, benefits and advantages to some groups because of their race and disadvantages and um, burdens to other people because of their race. So we can kind of think about things in our day-to-day -day basis, you know, our day-to-day -day living, um, segregation in schools, right? Most of us in America, and it's really strange. I asked my students, they were born in 2000, right? Like it's weird to have kids born in the 21st century <laughs> as college students. But I asked them, did you go to a school where most of the people in your class were of the same race? And most of them say yes, right? And so that is because we have segregated housing and then we go to segregated schools and we have segregated opportunities. And you know that leads to, um, to differences in incomes, which leads to differences in health outcomes, which leads to differences. We can go on and on and on. And so that whole system of advantages and disadvantages that kind of accumulate on each other, we can call that racism. And you, you say that people can do racist things, but not actually be racist. So can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, I think that we, I think that it's lazy to say you're a racist, you're not a racist. I think that's lazy because that puts a lot of people off the hook, right? I think it's probably more productive to say that you have you have participated in producing inequalities and you haven't produced, you haven't participated. And one person can do both of those things, right? So you, for example, can, um, I don't know, you can donate to the Black Mama's Bail Fund, right? That would be a thing that, you know, kind of undoes an institution that, uh, that, that punishes poor people for being poor, right? 
Um, they haven't been convicted of a crime, but they're in jail because they can't afford to get out. And we know that happens disproportionately to black folks than to other folks, right? So you can do that. And then you can also vote for a policy that say um, restricts people's access to voting. You, Sorry, you, you cut out right there. Things. Restricts access to what? Voting. Oh, got it. So you can do both of those things, right? And so one is one that tries to ameliorate racial inequalities. And the other is a thing that can reproduce inequalities. But the same person can do that, both of those things. So I think that it's important for us to figure out what actions are we doing that are helping and what actions are we doing that are hurting? Got it. How does someone take stock of all of these things, right? Because I imagine like voting, that happens every, you know, four years or I mean, in the, you know, in the other elections, it's what, every two years. Um, So you might not even realize in that moment, like as you're, if you were to sit down and do the homework today, okay, where are my, my holes that I need to really like look at? Like, where are the things where um, I need to get better? You might not remember that, but w- what are the other areas that someone could examine perhaps? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. It's like, what, what's your racial footprint or something like that? Yeah. Um, you know, Maria, I think that's a hard question because we all make a thousand decisions a day, right? You know, I'm going to shop at this grocery store, not that grocery store. I'm going to put my money at this bank, not that bank. I'm going to send my kid to this school, not that school. And so I think that in each of these choices, some are more um, obvious than others, um, that you could make a different choice that would, that would lead to greater equity. So for example, you might want to choose a store that pays its workers a fair wage. This is one that doesn't. Maybe it's, maybe it's cheaper, but it's not paying their employees a fair wage. Or, you know, maybe you have a choice that you can put your money in this big bank or you could put it in this co-op that might support small businesses or provide loans to low-income folks or something like that. So, so I think that because racial inequality is embedded in almost every domain of American life, we could probably think about each of the ways that we participate in society and see some things that we could do better. You know, uh, Candace, I, I have to, to, to piggyback on that. I think that you, you, you rose a good point in your book. You, you wrote specifically that the ratio of, of white people to black friends and black people to white friends. Mm-hmm. I think the underlying current in this is communication. I think expanding your horizons and, and, and inviting people into your circle and into your psyche is, is a great step to, to understanding the, the, the perhaps the subtle, subtle acts of racism that people do every day. So I think that I, when I was reading a, excerpts from your book, that was the first thing that stood out to me was that you actually give us a diagram. It's, it's, it's one thing to, to say the words, but it's a whole other thing to see it, to mm-hmm. see those, those figures in front of you. And you're, you're just taken aback at, wow, this is an experience that I don't get often. So I think, again, that undercurrent to, to at least addressing some of the, the subtle acts of racism that people do and with unbeknownst to themselves is, mm-hmm. is, is, is opening that dialogue, inviting people in who don't look like you, 
and having the, that conversation and allowing people to check you and check them to um, to get to that greater good. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the the thing that we the reason why we pointed out that we have very homogenous friend groups, right? Most white people don't have any black friends at all. And a lot of black people don't have any friends that aren't black. And that happens because of policies that none of us had, that none of us, like the three of us weren't living when these policies were implemented, but we we are benefited or disadvantaged now because of them. And we're all disadvantaged, I guess you could say, in the makeup of our friend groups, right? I think if you ask people, why are you friends with, why are all your friends white? You would never say like, cause I don't like black people. It would just be like, that's what, they're the people that I went to school with, right? But that has to do with housing segregation or, um, and, and so, you know, it is kind of awkward. You, even when I ask my, my students who, they go to college and they're like, it's the time to learn and the time to meet new people. As a first time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. <laughs> you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. <laughs> Bonus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, they keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. And then they still have like all white friends or, you know, and they are just like, it's awkward. Well, of course it's awkward. You know, if you've lived in a small town, it's okay. (laughs) You know, try to do something that you haven't done before. Talk to someone, you know, you have ties that have nothing to do with race. You are in the same class. You live in the same dorm. I like your sweater. I don't know. (laughs) There are ways that we can broach interracial friendships um, that may, you know, open us up to having these conversations more frequently and deeply. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny when I went to, um, when I went to Emerson college, I don't know if you guys know Emerson at all. Um, but I went to Emerson in Boston and how I was allowed to leave the nest was a whole other story. Had to beg my cousin, had to beg my parents to cut the umbilical cord so I could live at school six miles away. But um, I remember when I moved in and it was just complete shock. I mean, there were people with different color hair, like blue hair, piercings everywhere. Different. I was seeing a whole new world. And at first you're like, oh, what's going on? This is not what I'm used to seeing. And then you're like, oh, this is so cool, actually. And you get to, and that's like the cool thing about college, I feel like, if you get to go to a, you know, a a diverse enough college, you get to learn and hear and see and feel and touch all different kinds of cultures and all kinds of different people and, and just, um, and, and that's why, you know, I, I love traveling too. I love going, um, and my work as a journalist, I got to go all over the world. I've been in, um, all kinds of places. And so, 
you know, it's, it's, it's so important to have, um, different kinds of friends and it just isn't just, you know, skin color, it's everything, you know, it's, it's every size age. And that's what I love about after buzz and all of our networks, you know, BHL popcorn talk, all of them is when you come to one of our holiday parties, (laughs) it is first of all, the most fun thing ever, but you get to see everything and it makes me so proud and we've been doing this well before we've been doing this for 10 years and one of the proudest things i've i can say and i was even having the realization yesterday on the show with james is we because of different things i experienced in the business wanted to have a safe haven for hosts to build their careers and to be nurtured and to be able to make mistakes and be loved and supported and you know shift and help them rather than just throwing them away because they made a mistake, which is what happens a lot. And um, one of my proudest accomplishments um, with AfterBuzz and Kevin, of course, being the leader, is that you can be any age, size, color, gender, I mean, everything, non-gender, whatever it is, you can be anything and come in there and And it's given us so much because we're constantly learning and we're constantly growing. But, you know, when you don't have that, you can't know better. You can't be better. Um, And so I want to know a little bit more about the segregation, right? Because when you hear segregation, people are like, well, that's not a thing. Like, you know, everyone's free. So how do you explain that to people? So can I just go back to a a thing that you just said is that in this, uh, this group that you have with all of the different kinds of people is that you, and you can tell me, you know, you're, you're a journalist. And so like you talk to people, Mm -hmm. right. And you're not expecting to learn from them just by sitting next to them. Right. It doesn't, you don't learn by osmosis. And, And so I think one of the things that we get a little tricky about is that people somehow, I don't know how this happened, but it's kind of like, oh, well, if I show up in a diverse place, I'm going to learn something. But if you don't, as you know, right, if you're not talking, mm-hmm. engaging with learning from and contributing to, yep. then it's a moot yep. point, right? So I, yep. I, I think it's important just to highlight the effort that has to go into building those relationships they don't just happen and you don't just learn by being there right yeah um yeah so i i just yeah that it, it that inspired that rant right there um segregation so we tend to think about kind of like black black bathrooms white bathrooms and that is totally illegal but um in the 19, actually in the 19, there are these maps called Hulk maps. If you get bored, just Google H-O-L-C maps and then your city. And these maps have different colors, red, green, blue, yellow. And the green areas were kind of like up and coming white middle-class neighborhoods. And the yellow ones were kind of like maybe declining neighborhoods. And the red ones were largely black neighborhoods. The federal government created these maps for major metropolitan cities. So if you live in New York, Pittsburgh, Philly, 
DC, Charlotte, LA. Yeah. All of the major ones, you look and you'll see these maps. And I bet you, I bet you a thousand dollars and an invitation to your next party that if you look at the map, you would find where you live and then you can find where you live and it probably has the same makeup that it did in 1940. Wow. So, I'm looking at a map of LA right now. They our our team just pulled it up. So so Steven, <laughs> that big red circle area, what is that? Um so that's east of Culver City and north of Maywood. So I'm trying to figure out it doesn't have it It'd all. It'd be labeled. like Baldwin Hills, Inglewood, probably, yeah. which I mean historically, yes. And Baldwin still Hills, yeah. yeah. And you see that Beverly Hills is all green, but then you go down to Venice and it's all red. Yeah. And then you get further that's to Hawthorne. That's, that's, that's a perfect description of the demographic you just gave us in someone who lives in this city. That's yeah. precisely. So that map was like maybe ni- late 1930s, 1940s. So what that map did is to say banks can give loans, federally backed loans, to the green and the like maybe blue areas, but we're not giving them to the red areas. And so and people areas could own their homes, build wealth, pass that down. And the people in the red areas could not own their homes and could not pass their wealth. And so we can see, right, like red areas are also now becoming gentrified, right? But anyway, so this policy leads to, like has given us 70 years of segregation. So it didn't really have anything to do with I'm a racist or you know, I don't want to live over there. I want to live over here. It also has to do with, well, my family gave me a home or passed down intergenerational wealth. And now I can, I can live in Beverly Hills, but my family gave, passed down intergenerational debt. So I'm going to live in the red areas. So it's, it's a thing that has just happened. Like we don't need anyone to be mean we don't need anyone to be intentionally racist for this same policy that happened in the 1930s and 40s to shape the way we live, work, where we go to school, where all of that now. So, so it's like a, hidden that's segregation kind of about, about segregation. So it's mm-hmm. like it's like secret segregation. It's that's that is systemic racism. Wow. So, I want to really understand this. In those red areas today in 2020, homes are not able to be passed down? Well, what I mean is that those homes, that people couldn't get loans to buy their homes. So most of your wealth is in your home. Yeah. Right? Most people's, most people's wealth is in, the home, in their home. So imagine... Um, you know, like if your your grandparents die, they like give the house to somebody else in the family or they sell it and then you split the wealth. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine that if you couldn't buy your home, you were always renting or if you you couldn't get a federally backed loan and you got a shady loan with really high interest rates. If you miss a payment, you're out of there. You've lost everything that you ever had. So even just kind of in the way that um, state policies and federal policies dictated who could get a solid low income, low interest rate 
influence who could buy homes in the first place. So if you couldn't get a good loan, you couldn't buy. Mm. And if and you couldn't get a good loan if you lived in the red neighborhood. And then also at some time, you couldn't live in a green neighborhood if you were black. So we can see how the things that get passed down over generations, right, would get passed down to white folks and fewer things would get passed down to black folks, right? So you could also probably Zillow, right? The average cost of a home in Beverly Hills versus the average cost of a home in one of the red neighborhoods, right? And so just imagine if someone just died and passed on their home to the next generation, your kids did not work for that money. They didn't do anything except be your kid. And then you, they got that thing, right? So, you know, that's how that works. Or I'll give you another example. Um, there's a really good study about the same map. Um, and if you think about where the trees are planted, so maybe if you do like a um, like a Google search of the set, you know, like you can do a, a street image, that a lot of trees were planted in the green neighborhoods and not in the red neighborhoods, which now means that the red neighborhoods are hotter, have more pollution, um, people are more likely to have asthma, and the green neighborhoods have all that good clean air. They probably don't have, um, you know, like trash, uh, like garbage, uh, you know, place where you put trash, incinerators, that kind of thing. That was also dictated by by those maps, which still influences how people live and work today. Wow. So is it safe to say, or is it true, that in the red areas, if you want to get a loan that you're going to get a different kind of interest rate than the greener areas? Yes. Like like a significant difference. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so remember when Wells Fargo had to pay all that money out mm-hmm. after the after the great recession and all of that because they were giving those bad loans to Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. The housing so... the housing bubble that popped a uh, years ago? Oh, 2008. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and a lot of right a lot of black and brown people who like wanted to buy a home in the neighborhood that they have always lived then end up getting bad loans with really high interest rates mm-hmm. and bad terms and they lost any of the wealth that they ever had right yeah. so so the housing still, those, those dictate how people um how people how people get their loans now yeah. So, so Maria what redlining did on another level too is that not only did it push people to those where they couldn't own land, but it also created kind of a whirlpool feeling of anyone who has any kind of criminal history or who has to file for bankruptcy are only able to move into those areas. So it further lessens the value of the property and it further lessens the uh, ability of people to go to school safely. And it raises the crime rates in those areas as well. So redlining is a very huge issue that has long lasting effects. Um, And the housing bubble did not help at all because what it did was it gave people the opportunity to own these homes, but with really stringent rules around it that changed after deadlines. Usually you get a 30-year mortgage rate and you can say, I'm going to pay this for 30 years. Mm -hmm. A lot of these loans had different things that said, 
this is going to change. Yeah, adjustable based, rates. Yeah, and... adjustable rates. And mm-hmm. after 10 years, it turns into this. And after 20 years, it turns into this. And it also had a lot of adjustable rates that were based on the value of the property around it. So if they go into, let's say, Venice and they start gentrifying Venice, your mortgage rate that was $1,000 a month based on the value of the commercial property within three blocks of you could go up to 1500 to $2,000 a month without any notice. Does this all ring true? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So if we think about, right, then if most of that bad stuff was going to black and brown people and most of the good loans were going to white folks, that is systemic racism. Yeah. Yeah. And and how do we fix that? Is it really just... um? voting it doesn't seem like that's necessarily the answer but i what is what is the way yeah so i mean part of the issue is that a lot of the things that we see has to do more with wealth than anything else and so if there is a way to close the wealth gap then we could close a lot of other problems that's like it's kind of like um, it's one of those policies that we know would work, but no one wants to do. Like school integration. We all know that if kids went to integrated schools, then resources would be more evenly distributed and all kids would be better off, mm-hmm. but nobody wants to do that. So it's a similar thing. If we could close the wealth gap, we could solve a lot of problems. Got it. Can you speak on defunding the police? Sure, yeah. So I I think, I was thinking about this yesterday and thinking about how four, five, six years ago when people said Black Lives, right now we have like conservatives who are like, yeah, Black Lives Matter. And like six years ago or even two weeks ago, they would have said like, Black Lives Matter is anti-police and this and that and the other. And now people are coming around to that, um, coming around to wanting to know what it means and having a better understanding of what Black Lives Matter means and what the effort is about. And I think defunding the police is going to go through a similar life set of life trials. Because upon hearing it, it sounds like get rid of the police or don't provide funding for the police or make their squeeze them so small that we can drown them. That's what defunding sounds like. It's a communication issue. What people who are talking about defunding the police are talking about is shifting some of the funds that we give to police to other experts who can deal with issues that police are often called for, but have no training to deal with. For example, there's this really great episode of This American Life called like uh, Losing My Mind or Losing My Damn Mind. I hope I can say that word. That's in the title. Okay. Um, and it's about the black who's having a manic attack. Like he's, I think he's schizophrenic. And he sh- ends up in the hospital. He's naked and the nurses want him to go back in. He's having this, he's, he's just freaking out. And 
someone calls the police and they end up shooting him in his hospital room. And so all the doctors and nurses are like, okay, we just wanted your help a little. We like all of us doctors and nurses and, and mental health professionals, we might get hit every once in a while by our patients, but we don't shoot them. And so in that moment, we see that the police were not trained to deal with a mental health situation, Mm -hmm. right? Similarly to a man that was um, killed by police here where I live in state college last year, um, that police aren't equipped for that. Maybe we could have sent in a mental health specialist instead. Or another example, I lived in North Carolina a couple, well, last year I lived in North Carolina and there was a raccoon in my in my uh, trash can. So my husband goes out with his gun because he's also from North Carolina and that's what they do, I guess. And um, <laughs> so he's like, I need to deal with this raccoon. And so he calls the animal uh, control people. There's a raccoon in my yard. I could shoot it, but it might be rabbit. Someone needs to come and get it. Maybe you can tr- tranquilize it and come and get it and move it to someplace safe for the raccoon. But who shows up? The sheriff. Why did the sheriff show up to deal with the raccoon when there's a whole other agency, animal control, that could have done it, right? And it's probably because animal control doesn't have the resources that it needs and that if you had given enough resources to animal control, then the police wouldn't have had to come. So we can think of all these kinds of situations where police show up because the people who are really needed aren't funded enough, right? So might we think about changing the funding structure of police departments so that the money that we need to go to uh, the police, go to the police, and then how can we think of public safety in other ways? Is it, do people need, do people need food? Do people need housing? Do people need mental health services? If we gave them these things, then what we need to call the police. And if we didn't need to call the police, then what we need to give them the same budget. That's what defunding the police is really about. Yeah. So, Jeff, I gave you an article and I don't have it in front of me, so I might need your help to pull it up, please. Yeah. Um, Because you just have the Natalie stuff here, which is not what I'm really interested in. I'm really interested in all the examples of defunding the police. Um, Why I wanted to go over this is because I feel like everyone was so quick to judge defund the police and everyone instantly, you know, and we all have fear, right? Like that's just us as humans. So it's like, oh no, no police on the streets. I remember we have fun clicking through all the different news channels at times. So we'll listen to Fox, we'll listen to CNN, we'll listen to MC, and we'll listen to everybody. And on Fox, it was like, I think it was like Tucker Carlson is like, who are you going to call when something bad is happening? And I'm like, oh my God, that's what this is about. We're going to get rid of the police. And so I started instantly realizing I'm like, okay, we don't know what this is about. How can we judge something and have an opinion on something? We don't know anything. We, no one has sat down to actually read or understand what the intention is behind this. And so I was looking and looking online and I found this piece that really explained just like on a on a, you know, maybe 20,000 foot view, like a quick understanding of it, that it wasn't about removing the police. It was about, uh, because quickly people started citing an example of a city that didn't have a police department. 
mm-hmm. and how, you know, they had no crime and how everything was great and all of this. And I was like, interesting. And I, I likened it to um, early in my career, I did a story on, uh, I think it's Darien, Connecticut. In Darien, Connecticut, I'm sure you guys don't know, but they have teen paramedics. There are no EMTs there, but teenagers. They are trained. Okay. They're in high school. They've got, you know, their pagers or whatever cell phones now. And um, and teenagers show up with a chaperone. And they are the ones that handle all of the emergency um, calls in that city. It's really cool. So I was like, okay. At first I was like, well, maybe it'll be something like that. Okay, well, it's working there in that capacity. And it's working in this other city. But then I found this article. That explained it. And Jeff, have you pulled it up? Yeah, I can read this quote. It's really echoing a lot of what Candace is saying, but law enforcement should not be the first responder for mental health crises. They should be the first responders for drug and alcohol abuse. There are a significant number of public health crises that law enforcement are forced to be the first responders to, but should not be. We should actually reallocate those dollars and give them back to the community. So it's echoing a lot of, I think, the points that Candace so beautifully brought up earlier. Yeah, I didn't know if there was anything else in there. I think it was also, it explained um, maybe the positions that could be created. But like you said, like a mental health division. And it makes it makes sense, right? I, it makes sense to have people that are trained. I saw a post on social media from a hairdresser I know who said something like, and don't hold me to the numbers, but they were this extreme. She's like, I had to put 2,000 hours in to get licensed. A cop has like 400 hours or 450. And so um, I have a friend who's former uh, Secret Service who has always talked to us about um, the need for greater training for the local law enforcement because they just don't have the training even for them being able to carry a weapon, right? The level of training that they have to be able to carry a weapon is much, much different. So uh, forget all of these other things, right? Um, So it it made a lot more sense to me in that moment because everyone instantly wants to create their own narrative um, so that they can be right and that Mm -hmm. they can have their, you know, their, their thing. And I really thought that with the show, I wanted to understand different things that we're all talking about, different key words, different key, um, you know, um, things so that we can understand better. Because when we, I, we, that's our tagline on the show, when you know better, you get better. And, um, and so I think that's a really helpful thing for people to, to understand better. Obviously, it's a big, big topic right now. Yeah, another example that I think might ring some people's ears is if we think about um, when there's police in school, but not school counselors. So, you know, I think that's in the same line that we want our kids to be healthy. And are we expecting, sure, we want, I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen bad in schools, but wouldn't we rather have more counselors than more policing, right? Than more metal detectors or whatever else, right? When kids are at school. You know, I was quite moved myself. I recently saw in a clip with uh, Senator Kamala Harris, and she, the way she described the, 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 her notion behind defunding the police, she says reimagining, uh, defunding the police is reimagining how public safety in America works. We've confused the idea to achieve safety, you put more police on the streets. It's actually a reinvestment into the community. And I think 
you know, I think that sums up what you're saying, Candace, that it's, it's about investing in some, you know, domestic violence intervention, mental health help. Uh, you know, myself, I grew up, I, luckily there was a boys and girls club that was in my neighborhood that, you know, I was never into anything nefarious, but nonetheless, I had outlets. I think doing things like that, you know, uh, making small business loans available for, for people, those things can solve the problem at the source. So I think that, like you said, when people hear defund the police, it's almost like they hear dismantle the police. Mm-hmm. We, we understand and we appreciate the importance of the police. But, you know, you don't need, you know, one in Los Angeles there. The budget was at one point eight billion dollars. Imagine taking one percentage of that one point eight million dollars and setting up a boys and girls club in Hollywood. You know, that's a very easy thing. And it, it can have a lasting impression for generations. And mm-hmm. it costs one percent of Los Angeles County's uh allocation for police funds yeah i think half of la county's budget goes to policing 54 percent. wow and is that for their salaries or is that what are the other programs i'm confused or or, i'm not i don't know a lot of the the allocation of funds for the police are gone have gone and this is this to me this is what makes it, it sting that much more how often do we hear a police officer takes a black life and they're put on administrative leave that administrative leave that, that they're paid for comes out of our tax dollars. So this inflated budget is gone is going to you know almost foster the the thing that in, the thing in which we're fighting. So it goes to salaries, overpayments, administrative leave. You know, I understand the importance of having equipment and things like that, but you know, again, Los Angeles, one point eight billion dollars. That seems like a lot. Fifty four percent of our of our allocated funds in our city goes to police officers. Mm-hmm. And yet we experience things like this on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that money issue for me, Ugh. so much of your budget, even your home budget tells up your values. Right. And so if half of your budget is going to policing, what does that say about your values? How much? Does the average teacher in LA get paid? I'd be curious to know. That was the first thing I thought of, actually, because I saw online someone posted salaries. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize they made that much money. Um, and and listen, they're putting their lives on the line. I, mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's not about that. It was just about the discrepancy between them and mm-hmm. teachers was the first thing I thought of. Mm-hmm. So yeah. and in and in normal non COVID days, teachers are now having to be police officers and and you know, you know, have to keep their students safe, unfortunately, in the school shooting era. Yeah. Um so yeah. I think um I, I have to ask Candace before we wrap up, what have we missed? And I know there's so much, but is there something big that we may have missed in this discussion? Because I just I flow. and so we've we've kind of flowed but i'm like is there anything big that we've missed and i also have to say that um i don't want this conversation to end today and i really hope that we can have more of these conversations as um, more things come to light and and more things are needed so um you know I'm, i'm committed to the discussion and so it doesn't all have to happen today but if there's something big that i've missed that is very important today to get across to people and educate them on you know, please let me know. I th- I think sometimes when we hear all of this, it becomes very daunting and you almost feel like there's nothing that you can do or you feel a sense of paralysis. And to that, I guess, I think it's important to say that everyone can do something. It could be big, it could be small, it could be something in their home. It could be from, you know, making sure that the books in your home have 
brown people in the characters for your little kids to making sure that you vote. So it's those small elections, those little ones. That's where that happens for referendums and budget, that local budget stuff. That happens in those little elections, not in the big presidential four-year ones. And so no election is too small. So I guess I would say that, that we can all do little small incremental things in our lives that would aggregate up and make big changes over time. Can I ask one more quick question before we go to Marie? Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yeah. I mentioned this to you um, on our pre-interview yesterday, Candace, but there's a lot of um, you know white people right now who probably are having profound realizations about the own microaggressive racism in their life and they want to make change and even you know they may feel compelled to reach out to their black friends for support but they don't want to make it about their blackness if that's an okay way for me to phrase this like i'm trying to phrase mm-hmm. this tactfully but i'm wondering how there are white out al- like how white people and white allies can support the black community right now without a sense of obligation or guilt and just, you know, be supportive. I don't know if that's a fair question. Well, it's also kind not. of what James said earlier, even when you read your post, like, don't reach out to me. It will feel contrived right now. Absolutely. Oh yeah. That's a good post. <laughs> Thank you. Did you hear his post? Did you hear him so, read his post? I, I did. I mean, I just learned everything about it just right now. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> um, so, you, you know, I was thinking about this, Jeff. And I was thinking, you know, one, that most white people don't have black friends. But if you did, then it's not like doing anything different from being a friend, yeah. right? But if it's about a black neighbor or a black coworker, well, then things get a little different. Yeah. But I, would, I guess I would say this. People should simply acquaint themselves with the facts so that they can be prepared to deal with the problems that we see in an intelligent way, in an efficient way, and in a humane way. I stole that from a book from 1940, Montague. But <laughs> I think it's important to just kind of shift out of this moment of guilt and and just do your best to learn more and, like Maria says, do better. Great. Thank you. I love it. Well, we do when we do know better, we do get better, or we have the chance to get better. And I do believe we are better together. Um, And we talk on the show all the time about how we're all connected, right? And so just like you said earlier, like all lives can't matter if black lives don't. And so um, Candace, thank you so much for taking the time to um, help us today and to share. And and James, um, you know, you're as wonderful as Kevin says and even more. Um, And uh, I'm really, I'm really grateful, Candace, that you took this time. I, I don't have um, where we can find you. So let everybody know where uh, they can find you on social and, um, and uh, your books as well. So you can tweet me at Prof Candace. Uh, you can buy um, Stay Woke at NYU Press or any place you get, um, you know, books. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And nice to meet you both. Of course. We will see you again soon, I hope. I hope. Okay, fantastic. Uh, James, what do you think? That was uh, that was everything I thought it would be and, and more. Um, you know, I did I did quite a bit of research on on 
on on the doctor. I know she wants me to call her Candace, but my mom taught me better. Wait, so <laughs> Jeff said that she's not a doctor. I've been looking online and different sources are saying different things. I should have let you know, James, she loves to be intro just as Candace, so I probably should have okay. let you know that in advance, but... <laughs> Um, okay. Well, yeah. I want to make sure I have the right information so I'm not disrespectful and not, you know, someone went to school for that many years to be right. called a doctor. If she's a doctor, then I should have called her a doctor. I was like texting him like, Jeff, is she a doctor? And he's like, no. And I'm like, what? Her website says she has her MA. So I what's, think what's MA masters. I don't know if that's a doctorate. Yeah. I but... know her, her handle says she said Dr. Candace. Prof. Prof. Candace, I think. Candace. Yeah, okay, Professor sorry. Professor Candace Smith. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Okay. Nobody meant anything bad, so and we'll no, leave no, it at no. that. Um, but yeah, I think I think that was uh, really um, important because I really want people to watch this and and uh, and realize that jumping to conclusions doesn't really help anything or anyone, including yourself. Right. Absolutely. Um, any final thoughts, James? No, I just want to uh, thank you for this opportunity and, and, and really, uh, I guess my final thought would be just the underlying, again, the underlying current is communication. I, I, I firmly believe that, you know, there's, there are a few problems in this world that can't be solved with communication. So, again, take that opportunity with, with your friends, with your family, get uncomfortable, you know, have those conversations because it, 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 our silence is what put us in the mess we're in right now. So, again, the only way to get out of it is communication. I love it. James, thank you so much. Um, you can find James where? You can find me on Instagram at Terrell James Maple and on uh, Twitter at James Maple Actor as well. And I encourage you to watch his I Love You James series and uh, read his incredible articles at AfterBuzz TV, BHL, everywhere. Um, put those in the summary as well. And, um, and thank you for your contributions there. Thank you. All right, guys. Be nice people, make good choices, and be present. Well, that's it for today, Heal Squad. Before I let you go, I want to make sure you don't forget to take care of yourself today. I'll be making sure I'm not forgetting to get outside, do my meditations, and of course, keep myself fueled with some sweet, chili, wonderful pistachios. Wonderful pistachios, as you know, are my go-to when hunger strikes because they're one of the highest protein nuts providing all nine essential amino acids, and they're great for on-the-go snacking. So... When you're ready to elevate your snacking game, visit wonderfulpistachios.com to grab a bag 